0: Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Welcome to Seize Your Midlife. I am so glad you are back today to join us for this conversation. You are just going to be blown away. Today, I have Jessica Renfeld here for an interview. And Jessica is a business professional. She's the mom of three girls. And... Eternal optimist, a survivor of a very rare disease, and most recently, Jessica got a new heart. Her story is so courageous, and she is the face of grace and positivity. But I won't share her story for her. I'm going to let her share it. So welcome to Seize Your Midlife, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bree. I'm so excited, but I'm so incredibly humbled by that introduction. It doesn't seem like my life. Thank you so
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it is all true. So, okay. The first question I ask everybody on the podcast is how old are you? Okay. Well, I feel like I've
1: earned every single year. So I'm 46 years old, Brie.
0: Oh my gosh. I I saw that because we're the same age and I was like, wow, girl, you have gone through a lot. (laughs) So I'm so glad you're here today. Okay. And tell us, where are you right
1: now? So I am in Sandy, Utah. It's a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm hiding out in my master bedroom, hoping that you can't hear my four-legged fur babies barking in the backyard wanting to be let back
0: in. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I have two boys home right now, so I'm just praying that nobody comes like running through my office. So we are in the same boat. (laughs) Okay, so I know you have spent the majority of your life in Utah, but when I met you, it was actually in Las Vegas. We were at a bachelor party. And at the time, you were seemingly leading a happy and healthy life, right?
1: Yeah, I was. Like I had no idea what was on the horizon for me. I was a busy professional, just like you said, mother of three kids. I had no clue that anything was wrong at that point. I was living my life just completely oblivious to what it had in store for
0: me. Wow. And so 2016 is really kind of when things take a turn for you, right? You just start not feeling like yourself. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, so early in 2016 I just started feeling not not well. I had had a bronchitis That just did not go away. I got really sick when we were at Lake Powell, which is a big, beautiful lake here in southern Utah that we love to go to. And I was sick the entire week we were there. And then as the year went on, my legs started swelling. My work travel became more and more difficult. It was hard for me to work to like walk from my office in Portland, Oregon to the hotel I was staying at at night. Uh, There was one situation where I was actually in Chicago and I laid down in bed at night and I could hear rattling in my chest. I was falling asleep on conference calls, which was totally unlike me because I'm like the most incredible note taker, like overboard note taker there is. And I was literally just falling asleep and waking up after the call was over thinking, oh, my word, what's going on? It was just kind of crazy. I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. And I knew that something was wrong. And I had gone to the doctor multiple times over the year. And she kept on giving like diagnosis of just your thyroids off, or maybe you have asthma. And I knew it was more, but I started feeling defeated. And like, I wasn't being believed about how bad the situation might have been.
0: Wow. And I mean, I can imagine how frustrating that is. And I don't think you are the first woman that's had that problem of feeling like you were kind of dismissed. And I know you said you were at the zoo one day with your kids, and that's when you were like, no, this is really serious. So talk a little bit about that day.
1: Yeah. So my oldest daughter was turning 20, and she decided that she wanted to go to the local zoo, Hogel Zoo. And the way that exhibitions are set up in that zoo is you actually, like, walk down into them. And so at the end of the day, you have to walk back out up and out to get out the front gate. And like walking was starting to get pretty labored for me, even walking down the block, I told you was a struggle when it came to like my work travel. But that particular day, it took a very, very long day, a long time to get out of the zoo, because I would walk about 10 feet and be so completely winded and felt like I couldn't catch my breath. And My husband at the time said, just slow down. It's okay. We can take our time. Let's just, you can just rest your head here on my chest. He's like, but try and like, listen to what's going on. He's like, I've been doing a lot of reading and I think you might have something, but I don't want to put it in your head. (laughs) And so I sat there and I like actually for the first time I slowed down, you know, when you're a mom and you just go and you're a professional and you just go and you don't want anything taking you down, you're trying to prove to the world that you're just as good as everybody else is. I hadn't taken the time to actually listen, really listen to my body. Yes, I knew I felt bad, but I didn't take the time to really listen. So on that day, I actually felt like a back pressure behind my heart. And as I stood there waiting to catch my breath, I could feel the blood from behind my heart slowly get through my heart. And that pressure would relieve, and I could walk another 10 feet or so, and then that pressure would return behind my heart. I'd have to stop, do the same thing over again. We probably stopped 15 times before we finally got out of the gate. And he's like, you have to get a doctor appointment. And so I got an emergency doctor appointment that next day actually and i <laughs> i threw on the waterworks in that office because i wanted to be sure that she was listening this time and i yes. told, i believe it's my heart and she hooked me up with a machine called an ekg and the ekg came back with an abnormal reading and that's when everything kind of just blew up started going in for more tests. At first, uh, an echocardiogram stress test. And then it just went from there. And it was just this wild, crazy ride that didn't feel like my life. And I was just kind of being pushed along. And eventually, we figured it out.
0: And I know that this diagnosis was shocking. So what what was the eventual diagnosis?
1: Yeah. So the eventual diagnosis was systemic cardiac AL amyloidosis. It's a very rare blood disease. In lots of ways, it mimics um, multiple myeloma. Um, My hematologist oncologist calls it the evil stepsister of multiple myeloma. But essentially, your body in your bone marrow makes proteins that go to specific areas of your body to support what it needs to do in your day to day. Well, these proteins are actually shaped a certain way intentionally, but for some reason, my body started manufacturing proteins that were misfolded, so they were the wrong shape. And when they're the wrong shape, they start to stick together. And when they stick together, they become very sticky to vital organs in your body. So they actually attach themselves to vital organs. In my case, they embedded themselves in my heart wall. <laughs> a little bit in my kidneys, my liver, my GI system, but primarily my heart and is what it causes is a very, very stiff heart. So that's the diagnosis that we ended up with is this systemic cardiac AL amyloidosis. And I thought for certain I was going to die because I got the diagnosis or what we thought believed was the diagnosis before I actually went and saw the cardiac doctor the next day. And we started Googling and I had literally weeks to just months to live. And it was the most frightening experience I could have ever have imagined.
0: I, I can't even imagine. And I'm sure most people listening can't imagine how terrifying that must have been. And how old were the girls at this point?
1: Um. So my oldest was twenty. My middle daughter was fifteen, and my youngest was twelve. Oh my so gosh! Still pretty, pretty young, and needed their mom. Maybe not so much the twenty-year-old, but <laughs>
0: hey, I still, I still need my mom. <laughs> I still need my mom. I. Everybody needs their mom. So yes, yeah, it's true. that is so hard, and I just can't even imagine how scary. But you. Had to face this head on, you know, you had to fight for yourself. So, what did that end up looking like? What did the treatment look like? And where did you go from there after that moment when you get the official diagnosis?
1: Yeah, you know, you don't even think about it. All you do is just go into survival mode. At least that's what I did. And I told myself that I was just going to remain positive. And I had no choice. I was living. (laughs) That was what was going through my head. So initially, we started out with an outpatient chemotherapy, which I did two rounds of. But really, the most life-saving treatment at that point in time was a stem cell transplant, also known as a bone marrow transplant. So I did two rounds of chemo, which was a month apiece, approximately. And then, so my diagnosis happened in September Um, By the end of November, I was prepping for stem cell. So in order to do that, they actually take stem cells from my body. It's like a whole process. You have to have injections to build up the stem cells before you can harvest them. And then the American Red Cross actually comes and harvests them and keeps them on ice for me. Um, I actually have an extra set of stem cells if I, I ever go out of my remission so that we can do this again if we ever need to i forbid that ever happened, but I do have some on ice somewhere. So then we did a stem cell transplant on December fifth and sixth. It actually is a two day procedure. I was inpatient at LDS Hospital in downtown Salt Lake for I think it was ended up being about twenty three days. So essentially, the chemo they give you it's called Melphalan, and it kills you like to just this side of death. Like it kills. All of your cells, and hope, and it tries to give you like a reset or a reboot of your bone marrow manufacturing, I guess you could call it. And so that's what they did. They take you just the side of death, and then they let your immune system start to grow back or graft, is what they call it. And they don't let you go home until your numbers are at a certain point, and then you're released to home, and then <laughs> you're like, a newborn baby without any immunizations, no natural immunity at all. And so you walk around with an N95 mask on for the next year, waiting for your immune system to grow back entirely. And then you actually have to go and get your immunizations, like your childhood immunizations again. But after stem cell transplant at the, I think it was at the, let me think about this, six month mark, they checked to see what your blood levels are to see if it killed this bad production of, of proteins that we talked about earlier. And it hadn't taken them out completely, which was completely defeating to me because in my mind, I was going to do the stem cell transplant and that was going to be what cured me essentially. But that wasn't what the universe had in store. So I actually did an additional eight months of outpatient chemo. Eight months? Yeah, another eight oh, months, eight rounds. It was rough. Like I kept getting sicker and sicker. And by the end, um, like in November, I just told my hematologist, I'm like, I'm just feeling so crappy. Like after I get chemo, my downtime is longer and I'm working this entire time. I actually went back to work 11 weeks after my stem cell transplant and it was just getting harder and harder. And he said, okay, we're going to give you a chemo break. And You guys go on your little family vacation to Costa Rica, and then I think it would behoove us to actually get a second opinion. I'd like to send you to Mayo Clinic when you get back for a second opinion, because they're kind of like the center of excellence for all things amyloidosis. They're like the national leaders. So that's what we did. My family and I went to Costa Rica. I had been off chemo for about a month when I did that and started feeling a little bit better. So we had a great time. It's actually the last time we've been to Costa Rica, which is like our favorite place on earth. But it was like the perfect piece of heaven that we all needed at that point in our life. So, so grateful for that little
0: vacation. Oh my God. I can't imagine because yeah. you had been through hell. So from the time that you get the diagnosis to the time you go to Costa Rica, how much time has passed that you're going through all these grueling treatments?
1: Um, So we're at Exactly a year from stem cell transplant when we went to Costa Rica.
0: Wow. And did you yeah. feel any bit like yourself when you were there? Um, I started to
1: feel myself, I think. I don't know. I was still really tired. My face was still like really round and puffy from the steroid piece of the chemotherapy regimen. I still felt kind of chemo brain is definitely a thing when people talk about that like your thought process is really cloudy and not clear and strong and you definitely don't feel very creative or anything like that because like I feel like you're just your body gets so drained that you're like on minimum output as far Mm -hmm. as your brain activity goes so I mean there's a lot of things that maybe I don't remember about that trip because I still was in that chemotherapy cloud um that you I don't know. I guess that's the best way I could describe it.
0: Wow. And so when you come home, I know you talked about how in 2020, you just really took a turn for the worse.
1: I did. Yeah. So, you know, after the stem cell transplant, the hope was that those amyloid deposits that had stiffened my heart would actually start to be absorbed by my body and that my heart would recuperate. But between my stem cell transplant and 2020, my heart actually took a turn for the worst. And I ended up having to go into the hospital uh, every two to three months to get extra fluid taken off my body because my heart wasn't pumping strong enough to pull fluid off my body. Um, And so I would gain like 10, 12 pounds of water weight and I'd have to go inpatient to have them help me take that water weight back off, which... Um, relieve stress off my heart. Well, eventually, right at the beginning of 2020, January 2nd of 2020, I actually ended up having a stroke. And is what happened, they believe, is that because my heart was so stiff, the blood actually pooled in my heart, in my left ventricle, and then clotted, and then the clot went to my brain. And... Um. Yeah. And the stroke was actually so bad. The doctors actually didn't know if I was going to walk again. I could hear. So my family was actually in the room with me after my stroke. And Alan, um, my husband, was asking questions, you know, what's this going to do? Like, what's her life going to be like? Is she going to walk again? And the doctor said, you know, at this point, the stroke was so severe, we're not sure if she's going to walk again. And I remember thinking, bet, <laughs> I will walk again. You're not going to tell me I'm not going to walk again. And so literally, I was walking around the halls two days after this really massive stroke that I had. And I remember looking around, and and to me, it just felt natural. I'm just, I'm very stubborn Um, Some might call it persistent to be less negative, but I think I'm stubborn. And I didn't realize how big of a feat it actually was until I was walking around the neurology department. And the whole staff was just looking at me with their mouths like hanging wide open. Like I could tell like this wasn't what was expected. And it wasn't until I saw that that it actually was like, oh my gosh, they really meant I wasn't going to walk after my stroke.
0: Wow. I mean, it definitely sounds like your combination of optimism and stubbornness has helped (laughs) you a lot in all of this.
1: I would definitely say so, yes. Optimism is like, I don't know, it's the best drug you could ever have, in my opinion. It will get you through the hardest of times. It's just an incredible thing to be able to have –
0: um, and use when you need it. Wow. And so, okay, at this point, you've got diagnosed with this rare disease. You've had chemo. You've had a stem cell transplant and now a stroke. And how old were you when you have the stroke? Well, I guess 44. Oh, you know, Forty-four. I mean, I can't even imagine. Oh, my gosh. So after the stroke and after this kind of miraculous bounce back, mm-hmm. you still are having major issues. Yeah with your heart. And at some point you hear, Jessica, you need a new heart. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So after the stroke, they really started monitoring um, my heartbeat. My, um, and they found out is what I was having was VTEC, And VTEC I guess, can kill you or cause strokes or whatever might happen, but it's a really serious thing. So I actually got an it's called an ICD, and what that is is that it's a defibrillator, so it shocks you, it shocks your heart to go back into rhythm if it's at a point where it thinks that it's extremely dangerous, but I also had a pacemaker, but it's a combination with a pacemaker, which is supposed to help keep your rhythms regular so that you don't have to get shocked. Anyway, once they figured out that the Vtech was there, and I'd had my stroke, and they realize how sick I am, and they look back and say, you know, she's having to come in every three, two to three months to get diureased, etc. They're like, it's time to consider a heart transplant. And so really literally right after my stroke, we started the heart transplant journey. You don't just get put on a heart transplant list like you see in like Grey's Anatomy, it actually, <laughs> takes, it takes time. You have to interview with a psychiatrist, a dietitian. They do a ton of blood work. They do stress tests, um, which by the way, my stress test showed that my heart was actually um, performing at an average age of 78 year old woman. That's how bad my heart was at the time. Wow. Um, so it took about a month to get on the heart transplant after we went through all the testing, interviews, etc. It took about a month. Um, and then um, they put me on some medication to also help my heart rate. And I was feeling pretty okay. I mean, not great. I still felt horrible. Don't get me wrong, but I felt better than I did leading up to the stroke, I would say. I had a really um, high antibody count in my blood, which makes me really hard to place um, with a donor. And I won't get into the science of it. Just know that it just it impacted my ability to get a heart as fast as they would have liked. But I did have some things going or playing in my favor. And that was my size and also the fact that I had A-positive blood. And so I actually spent 15 months on the transplant list at a status four. Status one is the most severe status you could be on. So status four is, yes, she really needs a heart transplant, but right now she's she is living outside of a hospital and doing okay. But I started taking a term for the worse again And I went in for what I thought was just going to be a regular test where they go into my heart and test for heart pressures. And the, the cardiac surgeon that was doing the test that day says, let me call your doctor and see what he wants to do. And he calls the doctor and I can hear Ross, um, I call him by his first name. I can hear Ross and he goes, you're going to tell her she needs to stay and she's not going to like it.
0: <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> I, was Ross. Sick.
1: I made up every excuse in the world. I'm like, well, can you just let me go home and pack a bag or just eat some food before you like send me into the hospital? And I heard Ross and he said, no, she's bad enough that it's dangerous for her to leave at this point. So at that point, so I'm 15 months on the heart transplant list and At that point, I went impatient and I spent 78 days in the cardiac ICU waiting for a donor match.
0: Oh, my gosh, Jessica. I just, I mean, I was watching your journey from Facebook Uh and just being like, oh, my God, I can't even imagine what this was like for you. And how do you feel like your girls handled it? Because they had to have been scared. Oh, my goodness. Um,
1: my kids are rock stars, but I can't even imagine how hard it would have been. Um, my husband and I actually separated um, before I went into the hospital, and he bought his own house, and my kids were in my house. And so my oldest is off on her own, but my two youngest, so <laughs> I have a 19-year-old, and And a 16-year-old at the time, or maybe they were 20 and 17. They were 20 and 17, I guess. They're in the house, and they remind me all the time how I made them orphans for three months (laughs) that year. Because they were home, and I gave them my credit card. And, you know, we had daily check-ins. And they were allowed to come and visit one at a time. Um, there were a lot of really tough restrictions because I was in CICU during COVID.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. So I couldn't see all my kids all at the same time. They had to take turns. And we would do check-ins. And I know it was super, super tough on those kids. I I can't even imagine. This is This is the hardest part for me is when I put myself in my kid's shoes. Like, it oh. just... It breaks this mama's heart pretty hard, but like I said, my kids are rock stars and they might have PTSD for the rest of their life. I'm uncertain. But I can't even imagine being young and one day just finding out that your mom has a disease that could take her life, you know, any day. And but they they're just fantastic and I don't know how they do it, but I've learned to Kind of treat this life this way, too. but my kids are all so hilarious. Like when the situation's tough, they turn to just joking and laughing, and they're so witty and fun, and they're they're just incredibly strong kids, and I know it was tough on them, but they're just amazing human beings, and I couldn't be more proud.
0: Oh, well, I mean, they had to have learned that grit and that attitude from you because, my gosh, you – I mean, seriously, all the things that you went through and then on top of it, you're in the hospital during COVID, which I have heard just even for a normal thing was horrible time to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, your marriage is ending after mm-hmm. how many years?
1: 26 years. It was kind of crazy.
0: Years. Yeah. I mean, that's – all of those things just individually could break a person's spirit. And then you had all of it collectively. I I can't even imagine. Did you ever feel like at some point while you're in there that you gave up hope? Um,
1: I don't think I ever gave up hope. I knew I would get a heart eventually. And believe me, I had some pretty deep conversations with the creator. <laughs> I'm like, you know, when is it my turn? Why is this taking so long? And haven't I been through enough? And, but I can say honestly that I never lost hope, but I did get a little angry at one particular point when I was waiting. I just frustrated. I'm an impatient person. And when I can't control the situation, that's really hard for me. (laughs) And I thought that I should just be able to say, what day I'm going to get a heart? And, you know, that it's all, I'm going to be healed by this day and climbing mountains this day. And it was completely
0: out of my control, which was really difficult for me. I can't even imagine. I mean, every single part of your life and even just You know, the way that you had to let go and let your girls manage things. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of those things would be so hard. Yeah. But I think you're probably keeping your hope, even in the midst of probably questioning your faith and all of the things, probably is what gave you the spirit to survive all of this. And you eventually get the news that you're getting a heart. So talk a little bit about that because I know a really brutal surgery followed that good news.
1: Yeah, so this is actually a crazy part of the journey, too, because I actually had two hearts before the one I finally got. So, you know, I had the doctor and all of the nursing staff come in and say, we found you a heart twice, but, and it didn't work out. And I know now why it didn't work out, but at the time, it felt like I was grieving the loss of somebody who had died because that was like my life, right? That heart was supposed to be mine, and it was going to give me life, and it was like grieving death. It really was. It was the craziest thing ever. But both of those hearts had things that were maybe not ideal. One, they were ended up both being high-risk hearts, and that could be for a number of reasons. It could be for a chest injury or maybe an HIV-positive person. Um, they didn't let me know what or why they were high risk only that they weren't a perfect fit for me and I ended up getting the most incredibly perfect heart for me that I could have ever imagined and I know not everybody gets that but this heart is incredible and I just I don't know yes the the surgery was really really tough but I went through it really well. Um, I actually went off of, so you get intubated for the surgery, and I actually had my tubes taken out just hours after surgery. My two youngest girls were in the room with me during recovery, and they were playing like my favorite songs from the 80s and 90s, and they were tickling <laughs> my feet, and they were laughing and taking selfies and putting them on TikTok and Snapchat, letting everybody know that mom's okay. Okay. And this is what I was waking up to. I could feel like just the load lifted off of my kids. They were laughing and having fun. And like, it was like a whole new lease on life. Yes, I'm laying there and I just had this major surgery, but like that didn't matter. Everything was just looking towards the future at that point. It was a grueling surgery to heal from. And like I said, I'm a little bit impatient and I'm very stubborn. So again, I thought that I should be able to do things at a certain amount of time. And I had to remember that listening to my body was an important piece of the whole healing process. But really, I I don't know. I just took the same attitude of fight and stubbornness that I've always had and I just I just pushed through and I started with cardiac rehab as soon as I could. And I, you know, stayed on top of all of my doctor's visits, which were twice a week for several months. I made sure I was taking my medication on time, all of it. And all of that added up to a healing time that was relatively quick without very many issues. I did end up getting put back in the hospital after The transplant, I think three times for some short stays. One, um, my kidneys were a little taxed from the surgery. And like I said, I actually had a little bit of amyloid damage in my kidneys. So we have to watch those pretty close. But because of that, I swole up with some water weight right after the surgery, and they had to help me take some of that off. And then I did get pneumonia twice. Um, I got COVID back in December of 2019. And I'm one of those long haulers that got some scarring in my lungs. And because I'm on immunosuppressive therapy for the rest of my life now, it makes me more susceptible to getting things like pneumonia. And where I already have scarred lungs from having had COVID, like it was the perfect storm. So I did have pneumonia a few times. But, you know, as soon as I get in, I'm, all, I'm already asking the doctors, okay, when are you going to release me? When are you going to release me? I don't know if they release me because I'm healthy or because I'm annoying, but <laughs> I, I get out pretty quickly and, and get back to what I know how to do best, and that's just fighting and pushing forward. But um, yeah, I mean, yes, it's a grueling surgery, but I don't know. It was like the restart of my life. And it's such a positive thing to think about. I don't know. It's, it's, again, this doesn't feel like my life a lot of times when I talk about it, but it is. And
0: yeah, I mean, you, and you say so flippantly, like, oh, I had pneumonia. Oh, I had COVID. Oh, I had scarred lungs. Like, your attitude is so just like casual about it. And I think your spirit and your, your sense of, I don't know optimism and hope and all of those things shines through in fighting so many obstacles and that even I mean how many hours was that surgery um you know I think it was 6 hours I mean, that's like brutal. Yeah. And you, yeah. your attitude about it was like, I woke up and there, you know, my kids yeah. were in the room. And I mean, even your attitude about that was so positive. And I saw you had posted a picture and your just whole body looks so bruised. Like you look just, you know, like yeah. you've taken such, your body's taken such a beating. And yet your spirit and your attitude like rise above that. It's incredible. Yeah. Nothing ever broke my spirit.
1: Nothing ever did. I don't know how but it never did. Like it wasn't even an option for me. Like I had to be positive and I had to fight and I wanted to live. That's all there was to it through this whole entire thing.
0: And you told me briefly on our, our other call that you really felt like gratitude was such an important part of kind of turning your attitude to be positive and kind of helping you get through this. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that gratitude through adversity is like the most beautiful thing there is in life. I believe that no matter how bad of a day you're having, you can always find a little something to be grateful for. Whether it's you wake up and you say, you know, thank you for the fact that I'm breathing or Maybe it's just your cup of coffee was the perfect temperature that day, or maybe it's that the sun's shining, or that, you know, your kids got to school on time. There's something, there's always a little something that you can look for in your day to be grateful for, and I, I just find so many things that I'm grateful for. Like, somebody gave me their heart, first of all, you know. Like, how could I not be, like, the most grateful person in the world? And I can honestly say I'm grateful for this entire experience. I wouldn't change any of it. And I know people don't understand that, having not gone through it themselves. But I I was just going through life and maybe not enjoying it the way I could have or should have been. And this has given me an entirely new lease on life. And I know, Bree, you've seen that post that I talked about how food tastes better and colors are brighter and the air smells fresher and I can go on and on, but everything is just so much more beautiful now. And the people that I've met along my journey, the people who surrounded me, whether it be health caregivers or just healing spirits, like... I am so incredibly blessed and grateful to have gone through what I've been through because I would have never experienced this life that I'm experiencing right now.
0: Wow. And I do think it probably is hard for people to understand because it sounds like you've just been through hell and back. And so for you to say that is so powerful. And I think the thing that's really important to take away from this, and I want you to talk a little bit about this, is. Having women live their lives so that they don't need a diagnosis to live the way that you're talking about. What would you say to the women listening that are perfectly healthy, that are just living their life kind of on that rote repeat, you know, just going through the days? What would you say to her?
1: I would say that I understand that fear is a big piece of life. And believe me, I. I had a crutch of fear for years and years. Just let go of the fear. What's the worst thing that can happen? You might fail, but you know what? You're going to learn from that failure and you're going to grow. Don't like, wait for a big tragedy or a wake-up call to start living your life. You were put on this earth to live a beautiful and amazing life. And it's a gift, like every day is a gift and don't wait for the possibility of life being taken away from you before you start living. Just love life. Love your kids. Love your career. Love, I don't know, love what you do. Love your hobbies. Find new hobbies. It's fine to have, it's, it's great to have multiple hobbies. You can, you can, you know, reinvent yourself every day if you want to, if that's, what makes you happy. Just do things that make you happy. Take care of you. And everybody else will actually be happier that, of those that are around you. If you're living your genuinely happy life, then everybody around you is going to be happier. Like, Don't, don't think that you have to sacrifice your happiness for everybody else. Be who you're meant to be and live your life.
0: I appreciate those beautiful words, and I mean, I know it took all of this for you to get this new Outlook and new feeling of a new lease on life. But I hope that all the women listening really just take your story in. They say today's the day that I'm gonna make the changes in my life and I'm not gonna wait for the life altering experience to make that happen. And I, I am so grateful that you are sharing these things because it is important that people sometimes have that wake-up call, right? To say live your best life right now. Don't wait. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, Jessica, is you mentioned having survivor's guilt a little bit. And I just wanted, you know, I think that if people have not, you know, had a transplant, which I'm guessing most people listening have not, that that is a unique thing that's special to getting an organ from someone else. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. As soon as we started talking about heart transplant, it hit me that somebody else was going to have to die in order for me to live. And that in itself was just way too powerful for me to take on by myself. So I actually found a licensed clinical social worker and started talking about it. Like as soon as I got on the transplant list, because it was going to be super important to me that that didn't affect The life that I wanted to live once I did get the heart. And eventually I was able to kind of change my thinking in that this person was going to die anyway and that they're just leaving behind a beautiful gift. But I wasn't wishing for their death. I was just wishing that if someone did die that I would be able to receive a gift of a new heart. And that helped a lot, but I will say I thought I was ready um, once I got my heart, but then I got my heart and it was like somebody else's heart was beating in me. And I, I have to say that, that that guilt, it revisited me for sure. And so for the first month or so, I had to actually go through the steps again and remind myself that this person was going to die anyway and they left me this beautiful gift and I didn't wish for their death or hope for their death and, you know, every every day before my feet even hit the floor, I actually say to myself that I'm grateful for my donor and my donor's family because they're the ones who are left behind with the grief. I do get the opportunity to write uh, my donor family, it's an anonymous letter and they'll get to decide if they want to respond or not. Um, I've, I could have done it already, but I just, deep down, I didn't feel like they were probably ready to hear it. So I've waited and I've kind of jaunted down stuff that I want to include in that letter so that when the time comes and I feel like it's, you know, they're maybe ready to hear it, that I'm not missing anything that I think is exciting and important and to show them how much that I do love and appreciate the gift that I was given.
0: An organ donation is so important. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, if someone listening hasn't signed up to be an organ donor, how they can go ahead and do that?
1: Yeah, it's it's really simple. You can... Put it on your driver's license, obviously. That's what I did when I turned 16. I just checked yes to being a donor. But you can also go online and choose to be a donor that way. I think it's just donororgan.org or something like that. Um, I should have looked at that before I got on this.
0: That's okay. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'll work.
1: We'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But it's really easy and just... If you're not an organ donor, I understand it's kind of a very macabre thing to think about. Kind of, I don't know, nobody wants to think about their own death, but there's people out there waiting for hearts. I've actually got a friend waiting in the hospital right now. We were connected through our heart transplant team. She's been waiting for 203 days at this point. Aww in the hospital. She's got a little seven-year-old and a 16-year-old who are staying with other relatives while she's there. But these are the kind of people and stories that you could impact if you do become an organ donor. There's a lot of people out there that really love life and want to live and would be incredibly grateful if, if they were able to receive that
0: gift of life. Thank you for that. And I will definitely put the link in the show notes for this episode. One of the things you've kind of said throughout our conversation today is about gratitude. And, you know, just even that you said before your feet even hit the floor, you are thinking your donor and their family. But with that being said, how would you recommend a woman listening that doesn't maybe have a daily gratitude practice that she get that started to kind of change her outlook in life?
1: Yeah. So... I know that we've all probably heard this, but this is actually what started giving me more of a gratitude focus, is I created a gratitude journal, and at night before bed I would find 10 things, at least I would try and find 10 things every day that I was grateful for, and I started writing them down. I don't need to write them down anymore. I've been able to just become more present and find gratitude throughout the day, But that's how I initially started to try and get in the habit of seeking out things to be grateful for, is that I wrote them down before bed every night. I would just keep a journal right on my nightstand. And it was really easy before I laid my head down at night to jot down 10 things. And initially, I would say that it was hard to come up with 10 things. But then as you start doing it, those 10 things start becoming 15, 20 things really easily. And before you know it, like your mindset has changed and you're you're seeing things to be grateful for every day.
0: I agree with you. It's it's that keeping your eye out and they don't need to be the big things. They can be the small things like grateful for the sound of the birds this morning, or like you said, yes. they're grateful for this amazing cup of coffee, or I'm grateful for that great conversation I had with my friend today, or exactly, they don't have to be the huge things. And that once you start looking for the things, they appear magically everywhere. So I hope that someone listening is is changed by that advice and that they can start a gratitude practice. So Jessica, you have this new life. And I'm so excited for you. And I saw, you know, you were fishing and you went hiking with your friends and all these things. It just makes me so joyful. When you think about this next chapter, what's in store for you?
1: Oh my gosh. I am so excited about life. Like I, like you said, I'm fishing, I'm camping, I'm hiking, I'm planning new adventures. I've turned my small SUV into like a camping mobile. Like I've got a little mattress in there and like all my cooking stuff to go camping. So I can just on a whim, I can just get in my car and go somewhere and enjoy nature. But really, I think that this leg of my journey is figuring out who I really am. I've always been somebody's mom, somebody's wife, somebody's employee, but I think that now is the time to find out who is Jessica and what does she want out of life. And it's just, I don't know, life is so amazingly beautiful and it's exciting and it's tragic, but the tragedy is even beautiful to me. I can't even, I don't know, I think about life and it just... I just feel this incredible excitement creep up in my body, and I just can't even imagine everything that's in store. But I'll tell you this, I have an open heart for anything that the universe wants to throw at me.
0: Well, figuratively and literally, you have a (laughs) brand new open heart. I love that. And I think anybody listening, whether they've been through such a hard journey like you or not, this is a stage when they are seeing Who am I really? So I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm excited for you and excited for your next chapter. And I have to tell you, you are the first person I've interviewed that's made me cry. So thank you for your just absolute vulnerability and honesty and for being here today. Your words and your spirit, they just – Are beautiful and they shine through. And I'm just so thankful for this conversation today.
1: Thank you so much, Brie, for having me. It means so much to me. And I really hope that this can help somebody else who might be struggling in life to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Absolutely. And you are proof of that. So thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I am absolutely certain you are going to walk away with some new ways of looking at your life and finding the beauty and the gratitude to be had in the everyday. I just ask that you please tell a friend about the podcast, give it a review, or give it a five stars. The more women that find this conversation and join us, the fuller it will be. So thank you. And I am so very grateful for all of you.